two ways I want to go here. Um, to me, there's a parallel with Peter uh, wh- where Jesus says the cock, the crow is going to, the cock is going to crow three times, whatever, um, and you're going to have to deny me three times before the cock crows. That's what it is. Um, so the question is, was Peter weak or was this another request of Jesus? Hey, I need you to lead my church after I'm gone. You have to deny me so that you're going to still be around. Is that a, is that a, a reasonable interpretation? Yeah, I mean, it's reasonable. Uh it's perfectly fine. Another interpretation is that Jesus didn't ask him to do it or didn't know that he was going to do it. Like Jesus prophesied, you're going to do this. It's possible that this is a later explanation. Because um, I think you said that Matthew was very anti-Peter, right? Yes, this would this would get into a huge conversation, uh, discussion. But yes, basically... What we have in the Gospels, and I detail it like every time Matthew mentions Peter, he he kind of slams him or does little jabs or full on like you're Satan and you're gonna be cast off to hell. Right. Over and over, it's in Matthew. So yeah, when when that happens, you know Jesus is saying, "Get behind me, Satan!" And he's like he's very zealous and he wants to jump out and walk, but then he's faith. He has no well, faith. He, he sinks. Off and, the soldiers here. Yeah, he's, he's erratic. He's um, you know, he's, he's not, he doesn't come out looking good in Matthew. And if you, if you just isolate, take the other gospels away and then just take Matthew and say, every, show everything he's like saying about Peter, where like it says that he, okay, there's, there's one instance where a little kid is brought to Jesus uh, in Matthew, I think 18 brought to Jesus, and then the apostles and Peter's there, and they say, get this kid out of here. Like, don't bother Jesus. Then Jesus said, anyone who puts a, a, a barrier between me and the children is a scandalon. There's that word again. Scandalon is a stumbling block and should be put a millstone around their neck and should be cast. Like, they should die. Don't mess with the children. And so what happens? The very next chapter in Matthew 19, another child is brought, and Peter does the same thing. The apostles and Peter does the same thing. And it's... I think Matthew, and then there's the, oh, let me back up. There's a, a parable that Jesus gives probably 10 chapters before that. And that is the seed that he, they plant, right? It falls like in the rocks and it, it and it's, it springs up, right? That, the rocky ground, all of those words, rocky ground, uh, kephas, this means rock or stone and Peter, right? Right. Um, you have the word scandalon, a stumbling block in that parable also. And so some think, like Mark Goodacre and others think that that parable in Matthew is about Peter because he does this. It says those who are zealous, they spring up and, you know, and then they lose faith. That's exactly what Peter's doing all the time. He's all, he gets really zealous. He's like, oh, I will never betray you. And then Jesus, and then Jesus says, yeah, you will. And like, you know, Jesus tells the, the apostles to stay awake when he goes into Gethsemane. He comes out, they're all asleep, but he doesn't address all of them. He turns to Peter and he says, have you no faith? And he's like, Peter does it three different times, every single time. Um, he just get Matthew just blasts him, and then there's the the denial, denying three times. In Matthew, uh, the author of Matthew says that Jesus, in that gospel, says, "Do not swear an oath. Do not oath take, especially not with people you you shouldn't be doing it with." And so, when that very setting, when Jesus is inside, refusing to take an oath with uh, Caiaphas, 
that same time, Peter is outside and he says he takes an oath and he denies Jesus. You know, and, and, and then in other places, it says that those who take an oath will be uh, cast off to hell. Like there's all this language that if you know, in, if you look at what's happening in Peter and the language and Jesus says, and then you trace all those same words in those same settings and all the way throughout the gospel, you know, like every single place that Jesus is mentioning, those who do certain things, they're going to be cast off to hell and there's going to be weeping and wailing. That's always Peter. <laughs> right. So there's a reason why I get into my book. There, there's a reason why, and we can talk about it a little bit later in, in a segment, but why Matthew does not like Peter. Because then what I do is I bring in Luke. I said, okay, what is Luke? We're assuming that Luke is written after Matthew. This is a debate, huge debate in, in biblical studies of which one came first. But Mark Goodacre, a Duke who's a synoptic problem scholar, he's arguing, I think in a recent book that is coming out, that Luke um, came after Matthew. Because what you can see is where every time where Matthew criticizes Peter or makes him look bad, Luke comes along and touches it up. He either removes Peter or he moves, you know, he doesn't call him Satan, like every single time. And he's trying to soften that view of Peter. So, yeah, the, it's, it, they're fun topics. And, you you know, my, some of my reviewers are like, man, that's like, how do we, I don't like that. Like, how do we, why, why should we revere Peter then? Like, you're, you're destroying the entire foundation of the Christian church. I'm like, well, it's not, not, not really saying that. I'm just saying that that's what Matthew is saying. I'm not saying Jesus actually called him Satan and said he's going to be in hell. That's what Matthew is saying that Jesus said. The author Matthew, right? So. Well, because there's another story about um, that I've heard that Jesus's brother James was the leader of the early Christian movement. Yeah, um, and the implication is, and I'm trying to remember. I think I get my stories mixed up. I believe it's the story where Paul and Peter are having an argument about circumcision. And they go to James to uh, solve the argument, I, I believe. And so that kind of makes it sound like James is in charge of the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's very, yeah, he's very, you know, brother. So, and, and, and you know, when you think about it, his brother would make a lot of sense, right? Because he's the brother of Jesus. Why wouldn't he be, in, why would Peter be in charge? So was James the original leader and not Peter? I mean, it certainly looks that way in um, in Acts in Acts fifteen. Um, do you want to do you want to do that? Okay, there, do you want to talk about the Jerusalem Council and that whole issue? Yeah, let's do it. Because and there's why this is important. This is this is one chapter that I'm going to write an academic book in terms of four scholars. I, I deal with it in one chapter of this book. I'm going to expand it to an entire book and go deep and cover overturn every stone to argue this. But my argument is. Um, and it takes me an entire class period with my students to show them what happened starting in the 50s to the 70s. It was continuing in the 70s. This generation is when the Gospels were written. What was going on during so that generation? So you're saying it's earlier because most people say it's more like 90s to 110, right? That's pretty late. Um, but 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it could even if it's in the 90s and 110s, um, I mean, one tens, that's pretty late. That's when the gospels actually start showing up in early Christian literature in the one tens, one, one tens to one twenties. So there's got to be more time for was them to circulate. Was it more of an oral tradition in the sixties then, do you think, or was it written down that early? Uh, I think it's possible that it was at least Mark was put down in the sixties when the war was going on, because there's all kinds of evidence that the temple's destruction, he's, he's referring to the desolation of sacrilege 
Um, you know, and there's so most people want to date it to the 60s, but even if it was in the 70s or 80s, that's the generation in which the Gospels are written. So my question in the book is what was going on in that generation that influenced the writing of the text? And it's exactly what you're talking about, this debate. In fact, I think I've got, you, know, you mind if I read? Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Because this explains, this is one of my, I, I, this is a quote from one of my friends, Gary Rensberg, who actually wrote a chapter in that other book that I, that we didn't okay. mention. We can um, that <laughs> where is it? Where is it? Okay. <laughs> okay. So this, this is Gary Rensberg. He's a Jewish scholar at Rutgers. And I just threw this on some notes because like, I think this will explain, this will help. This is what I read to my students. He's talking about the book of Genesis. But it's an analogy, and it, it pl- applies perfectly to the Gospels. And he's he, he's arguing that Genesis was written much later than um, the time of David, even the time of David. But here's how he's, he explains it. And we can just substitute the Gospels. Genesis in was, was written after King David? Way after, yeah. Okay. We're talking about 600s, even 500s. And there's, there's lots of crumbs in the text, left in the text, uh, different words that are contemporary to that time period, different uh, references that wouldn't have been placed earlier. Anyway, there's lots of different ways scholars date it, at least Genesis' final form. Wait a minute. That's after Lehi, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, after Lehi. Yeah. Earlier, there's earlier, so even Isaiah, even first Isaiah references, I think, Sodom and Gomorrah or Abraham. So these traditions, they probably know about these. But in its final form, final redacted form, we're talking exilic period after, right? And that's the, I mean, that's the argument that he makes. And, um, I've got whole lectures on that too. It's 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 fun. It's pretty compelling. But here's what he's here's how he explains it. He says scribes wrote. So in this, you could you could substitute that with the authors of the gospels. Scribes wrote a national epic, incorporating all of the earlier traditions back to Abraham, and embedded into that narrative anticipations of the present. So so he says that is to say, there's a social, religious, and indeed political message in the book of Genesis. And then he says. Okay, or in, he says, or in other words, these scribes tell the story about the past but reflect upon the present. This was a major accomplishment of the anonymous authors in Jerusalem who created the book of Genesis, or in this case, the gospel writers who, who wrote their gospels. This technique is well known in world literature. Take, for example, from film, the movie MASH, the TV show, but there's also the movie, written in 1969. It tells the story of, an American, of American troops during the Korean War. But as all who see that film know, in essence, it is about another land war in Asia, the one still raging at that time in 1969, which was Vietnam. The anti-war pro-peace stance of the lead character Benjamin Franklin Hawkeye Pierce reflects the present, which is the late 60s, but is anachronistic for the early 50s. See? So, and that's the case. I just want to read that. I share that all the time because it's when someone says, are the Gospels historical or historically reliable? I say, yes, really reliable in the time period in which they were written for that time period, the 60s, 70s, 80s. And so the argument goes, and I can give you, I'll just get this. There's a few references I want to mention, but basically here's the argument. When Jesus died in the late 20s sometime, you know, all the way until the 50s, what was happening to the, to the movement? Well, James is in Jerusalem. This is, this is a Jewish group. And then sometime in that time period, Paul, joined, who's a Pharisee, joins the group, joins the movement. And then he goes out and he starts, he takes the gospel to every nation, right? Like this is Jesus' charge. He goes out. The problem is 
that it takes 20 years for this debate that you mentioned that we'll bring up again occurs. The debate comes up because he's converting Gentiles in Corinth and like in other places in Greece and Rome. He's converting them, but they're not moving to Jerusalem. They're staying there. So there's not this interaction between Jews and Gentiles until later, right? Okay, so what happens is there's this time period, there's this, there's this event around 50 where in Antioch up in Syria, Paul happens to be there and then Peter and Barnabas are there. This is in, this is in Galatians. And they're, they're, they're going to have a meal and Peter and Barnabas sit with Jews, the Jewish followers of Jesus. And Paul is sitting with the Gentile, the non-Jewish followers of Jesus, and he's furious because they, they won't eat together. They separate. And Peter's eating with those people. And he calls Peter and Barnabas hypocrites. Okay, so what does this sound like? You've got a mill. A mil, you, you have two groups not wanting to sit together because of purity reasons. You have um, one person calling another person a, a hypocrite, like what Pharisees were called. And it's, a, it's like this. It's a mealtime setting. That sounds like the Gospels. All those settings where Jesus is eating with Pharisees and they're having this discussion on whether outsiders should come in and be welcomed into the group. Okay? So you have that setting and that raises a question. Like everything hits the fan, it comes to a head. We need, we need to go to Jerusalem and discuss this. This is really the first time where this, this blew up. So they go to Jerusalem and in Acts 15, the question is, should people who, who are non-Jewish be required to become Jews, convert to Judaism in order to be a member of the Jesus movement, right? That's the question, right? Um, Paul stands up and he says, these Gentiles only have to be immersed. That's the only part of, of the Jewish system, like to be immersed. That's it. James stands up and says, well, they, yeah, they don't have to be circumcised. They have to be immersed, but they also, and he quotes Leviticus 17 and 18, and he says they also have to follow some other laws, like important laws, Jewish laws. No eating um, the meat from an animal that was sacrificed to an idol. No eating, uh, no, no drinking any blood of an animal. You can't eat from an animal that was strangled. Like these are like embedded right in Leviticus. And then also sexually pure. You can't engage in fornication. So they have to be immersed and they do have to follow these key these, ver these key aspects of Jewish law. The analogies today, the word, of, the word of wisdom, we do the same thing. We say members have to come in and they have to have no alcohol, no tobacco, no coffee, no tea. That's not the word of wisdom. Those are just the things that we've pulled out of the word of wisdom and we are, that mean the most important to us. They're boundary markers for being a Latter-day Saint. For James, that's, that's those aspects, right? So then you have, do, do you know, if, if you asked Latter-day Saints, I even ask you, Who's the third party? Who's the third person or the third party that stood up and gave their position? They, 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 they got the floor, they got the microphone, and they got to give their position. Do you know, do you remember? You're talking about this Jerusalem Council? The Jerusalem Council. After Paul, after James, somebody else stood up and got... After James? Yeah. Not Peter? No, Peter's probably with James, like, okay. like the way that Peter... Because what I remember is, yeah, it's the showdown between... Paul and Peter, and I thought they went to James and said, what do you decide? And James agreed with Paul. In Acts 15, the Pharisee followers of Jesus stand up and they give their position. And so we'll talk about the Pharisees in a, in a minute. 
But this is one piece of evidence that I think the Pharisees and Jesus were very close, very cordial. Not all Pharisees, but the Pharisaic system and the Jesus movement came out of the Pharisaic system or they were Pharisaic type Jews. They followed the Pharisaic rulings. Okay. This is one piece of evidence. The Pharisees, and the reason why I think the Pharisees had a seat at the table and were were given, you know, the microphone, I keep saying the microphone, so to speak, (laughs) is because they had a, they, they had a sizable following of Jewish exclusive Pharisee followers of Jesus. So what do they say? They say, no, they have to be circumcised. They have to be immersed and they have to follow the entire law, the whole law. And the Greek word used for that council is stasis. It's a, it means like it's translated dissension or it's like, but basically that word means riot. There's a riot. Um, because when they side with Paul and they say, yeah, you're right. We don't, they don't have to become Jews. They just have to be immersed. This alienates both the and even it even alienates Peter, who's 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 and James, who are the Jerusalem Jewish faction of the Jesus movement, and it alienates the Pharisaic aspect, the Pharisaic sector, like the group, because they wanted them to be circumcised because they were Jews. And like this is a Jewish, they're saying this is a Jewish movement. And let me just give you some references because I put them down here. So uh, I didn't want to forget. So in Leviticus 10, it says, you are, to, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. Pharisees are followers of Jewish law. Okay, so they're thinking, we can't just have Gentiles come in and bring all of their pagan impurities and their, their culture of idol worship, and they're not, they're not following Jewish law, so they're going to contaminate an impurity. When we sit down and eat or when we're in our, you know, in our meetings, uh, in our houses, like in the mealtime symposia, the, the mealtime setting, um, we can talk about that, but they're going to contaminate everything. In Genesis 17, it says, according to Gen- um, uh, in Genesis, uh, I just pulled some from text from this. It says, um, God commanded, in seven, Genesis 17, God commanded all of Israel to be circumcised. He also commanded all male foreigners who wish to enter the covenant to be circumcised. It's foreigners. Otherwise, they shall be cut off from this people. Pharisees also know that. In Exodus 12, it says that any foreigner residing among covenant Israel who desires to participate in Passover and eat with Israelites must be circumcised. This is, this is the entire Pharisaic and Jewish way of life. Ever since the days of Jesus, like 20 years ago, we've been, we were a Jewish group. We followed Jewish law. Even after Jesus died, you have all of the apostles in Acts going to the festivals, celebrating on the Jewish Sabbath. Paul in Acts 21 goes and sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. This is after Jesus died. They're still living Jewish law. The Pharisees are living Jewish law. This is a Jewish group. And the minute they decided to side with Paul, that um, now this is like a strange conglomeration of like... When you say they, you're saying that James and Peter sided with Paul and said they don't need to be circumcised. They evidently, yeah, they, they eventually sided with... You know, they, they leaned towards Paul's side for Gentiles, not for Jews, other Jews, right? right? And so... It infuriates the, the Pharisees. The reason why I bring all that up is because then if you go look in the letters of Paul that post-date this council in 50 CE, he's furious because he, he says, like in Galatians and other places, he says, these people from Jerusalem, these circumcised people, he's talking about Jesus believers. They keep, they keep beating me here and they keep coming here and telling you to be circumcised. He says, I, and in one place in Galatians, I think it's Galatians, he says, 
I hope they slip at the knife and accidentally castrate themselves. He's furious. He calls the, the, the Jerusalem apostles, he calls them false apostles. You know, he says, he doesn't say James and Peter. He says the leaders in Jerusalem are false. They're so-called apostles, right? Then in there's, <clears throat> there's some other places where Paul and in, like in Corinthians and some other places where Paul says, he's speaking to a crowd and he says, look, you guys are following after Peter and you guys are following after me. And he, he, he says, some of Apollos yeah, he, he, he's, he's saying that there are factions. We know that there are factions. We know he's furious. And then in some of his letters, he says, it's strange because he says, guys, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I've never been. To, I did go to Jerusalem for f one time. And when I was there, I only stayed for 15 days and I never met with the apostles. That's strange. Why, why is he saying that? Unless he, unless a, a, a big a rift happened between the Gentile inclusive faction of the Jesus movement who were fighting against the Jewish exclusive faction of the Jesus movement. And when Paul is now traveling around after that decision was made and Pharisees and or Peter and James and others, probably the Pharisees who are mad about this as well, they're, they're also going out around and they're telling people you have to be circumcised. And Paul's like, no, they keep coming from Jerusalem and telling you this. They don't, you don't have to be circumcised and they're so-called apostles. And I, and I didn't go, I didn't, haven't talked to them. I didn't get my gospel from them. He says, I didn't get my gospel from them. And my question in the book is, why is he, why is he saying that? Why is he trying to reassure his Gentile audience that he didn't get his gospel from them? He hasn't associated with them. He never goes to Jerusalem. And, and when he went to Jerusalem, the one time he only stayed for 15 days and didn't meet with the apostles. It's because he knows that there's, this rift has become so bad that his Gentile followers of Jesus don't like the original apostles. That's become so um, uh, contentious, right? And so the discussion we had earlier about why Matthew criticizes Peter over and over and over again in his gospel that's because Matthew's written after the Jerusalem Council, when all of this is raging, he slams the two main people that he criticizes, Matthew, are the Pharisees and Peter. Why would he do that? Because he's a Pauline Christian. He's siding with the Pauline. Like, yes, he's writing to Jews, and yes, he's pulling in David and Moses and everything. But all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he's showing that Gentiles have it. The Magi come, they're Gentiles. There's one place where Jesus uh, meets a centurion and he says, you are as faithful as I've ever seen. Right. No one in Israel has your faith. And it's just over and over. Like there's a Gentile woman that shows up and Jesus says, you know, you have great faith. And, and Pilate, Pilate looks amazing in the gospel of Matthew. Which, I washed my hands. Yeah, well, we'll you guys that wanted to kill We'll Jesus. talk about Pilate. But why is it that the, the gospel that is Pauline, in, in my argument, that's that's pro-Gentile, he's a Gentile inclusive faction, who's giving a nod, hat tip to all of the Gentiles. They have all this faith and it's Jews and Pharisees who are just rotten. They're gonna be in hell. That's because it's written after the Jerusalem Council in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whenever it's written, when this debate is raging between Pharisees and between, and, and the, the other Jewish exclusive faction and a Gentile inclusive faction. Now, can you explain to me, because this just seems so foreign for Christians, I guess. Um, why is it that Jews would not eat with Gentiles? Because 
like I've eaten dinner with Jews before and it was maybe they were bad Jews. I don't know, <laughs> but, but it seems very discriminatory or something in our modern lens. But in the, the days of Jesus, it was a more of a purity thing. Is that why? Yeah, it is. So the, the and this is a, this is an important what you're asking me now is an important key, an important point for my argument that I can make later on what happened um, that the Pharisees and G the Jesus movement were very cordial and we don't see that rift until after. Like you have the parting of the ways between the Pharisaic followers of Jesus and then the Pharisees in general and the Jesus movement. Um, so the one of the key aspects of that relationship, if we go back into the days of Jesus into the late 20s, is this mealtime symposia. Like, right. what is this? There's the Greco-Roman, the philosophers did this. They would eat together and they would have a symposium where they would debate the, the philosophy. Like they would have philosophical debates, but they're not meeting with their opponents. This is an, uh, an in-house, uh, this is a community uh, friendship where the philosophers, you know, debate. It seems like there's a, an old Jewish saying that says if, um, if you have two Jews meet together, you'll get three arguments. Three, yeah, three opinions, <laughs> three arguments. That's, that, that is the story of, of early Judaism and rabbinic. The, the entire rabbinic corpus of rabbinic literature, the Talmud, the Mishnah, all this is one long debate. It says this guy debates this, these two debate this, and the, the, the rabbis finally had to come to this decision. It's all over the place. So the Jews, the Jews adopted this practice where you have this, um, especially the Pharisees, where you have this mealtime symposia and Ben Sira and other, other um, Jewish texts talk about this. And so we can add the, the gospels, we can add these other Jewish texts. The Mishnah, that's the early Jew, earliest rabbinic text, postdates Jesus by like maybe 100, 150 years, talks in detail about these settings. What happens is you would get uh, these people together, they're, they're from the same community, like-minded, and they would have guests of honor. And they would bring a guest of honor and they would sit at a table and you would, and it, this is in the the Last Supper, like this, this is in the New Testament as well, but they would, the guest of honor would sit and then you'd go in descending order. Like your best students would be closest to you if you're the host and they would go in descending order. So this is why Jesus says, if you go to the uh, mealtime, you don't sit up at the top because then you might, you don't sit by the host because then you'll look foolish if he tells you to move down. Sit at the lowest and then he can tell you to move up. The last shall be for, you know, those kind of things. Like he is humble, exalted. So the, the symposium was you would eat and before you would eat, you would have some sort of purity. You would either dip in the mikvah oat, one of the, one of the mikvah oat, the mikvah, or you would wash, the host might wash their feet and their hands. He might anoint their head with oil. Uh, it's just whatever the host wants. And there's practices of this. And we know, so Jesus does this all throughout, the, not all throughout, but some places in the gospels, especially the last supper, he does this. He washes their feet and he talks about being cleansed and being washed. That's a pre-meal uh, ritual. Then you would eat with friends and then after you would debate the law. If you understand that, you can see how when Pharisees, like four or five times in Luke, are inviting Jesus to, as a, as a guest, an honored guest, to their mealtime, what do they do? They eat and then they debate. And what do they usually debate? What do we do with people who've removed themselves from outside the house of Israel, tax collectors, prostitutes, like all these people, like non-Jews and then Jews have removed themselves out who are not living the law. They've removed themselves from the covenant of the house of Israel. What do we do with those people, Jesus? 
that debate comes up all the time. Like there's five or six different times where the debate comes up in that, in the mealtime setting and then also in other settings. It's the same debate all the time. So if Jesus did have debates with Pharisees, that was the debate. And Pharisees are saying, in fact, let, let me just show you, I'll just, just so everybody has the, the references. Um, let's just, I mean, I could quote off that. Okay, so the Pharisees asked Jesus, this is in Luke 7 and Matthew 11. They asked Jesus, you're bringing these people in. Are you a friend of these people? These, these sinners? Sometimes you use the word sinners. Other times it's, yeah, it's other times it's like these, uh, these, these other like prostitutes. Like there's different words, but usually it's sinners. Are you friends with them? This is, this is in line with what we learned from the Mishnah and from other texts, that this is a friendship group. This is not a hostile. Pharisees didn't invite Jesus to dinner so they can entrap him and, you know, and like try to kill him. They invited him over and over and over because they see him as an ally. But they're confused by Jesus bringing in these like people from outside the house of Israel, like Gentiles and other, or even if they're Jews, they're like tax collectors, which means they're like gangsters. They, ex- they extort money. They engage in tax farming. They're handling money, which is impure. There's images on, imprinted on the money. So there's idol worship. This is why tax collectors are so, um, you know, they're, they're rejected. So that's the debate over and over and over. And there is, let me just show you. Okay, here's the wisdom of Ben Sira. I pulled, I pulled this just so, so that your listeners could hear it. This is a second century BCE text. Let your conversation be with men of understanding and let all of your discussion be about the law of the Most High. Let righteous men be your dinner companions and let your glorying be in the fear of the Lord. Do not reprove your neighbor at the banquet of wine and do not despise him in his merrymaking. Speak no word of reproach to him and do not afflict him by making demands of him. Some scholars think that the wisdom of Ben Sirah is written by a Pharisee. It's, it's, it's very Pharisaic. I don't know if we can say that for sure, but it's a Jewish text predating Jesus that, that talks about this issue, like talks about this setting. And it even says, let your uh, dinner companions be righteous men. That is the, the most common word used in Josephus about Pharisees, righteous, dikaios uh, and usabia, righteousness toward God, righteousness toward their fellow man. This defines um, Pharisaism. So um, I just bring that up because that's, um, that's if Jesus is eating with Pharisees over and over and they're having these discussions with him, they're expected to debate. This is not the same kind of relationship that Jesus has with the temple establishment. Like Latter-day Saints and Christians in general just lump all of, they, they assume that everything is negative. Every question, unless a Pharisee says, Master, and then Jesus answers, and then the Pharisee says, Okay, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're great, you're a holy man. Outside of those, every single episode is assumed to be negative. And we just lump Sadducees, priest establishment, Pharisees in one, one basket of people who want to entrap Jesus and get him killed. Uh, that's not the case. So, um, anyway, we will talk about the Pharisees, and this might come up again, but, um, let me ask you, does this, when we're talking about the Jerusalem Council and parting of the ways and the nuances about how all of that played out and then all of the Gospels were written with that in mind, the Gospels are written with these, these mealtime symposia where Jesus is with Pharisees debating the very thing that they were debating in the Jerusalem Council and in an Antioch when Paul and Peter were eating with, you know, separate. Does that make sense to you that uh, the Gospels are written with that um you know, that rift, because all throughout the Gospels, they're eating together and the, the same thing comes up. Uh, a Gentile woman approaches Jesus in a mealtime setting 
And he says, uh, I've, I've not come to Gentiles. I've only come to Jews. So I can't, I can't deal with you. And so, so then she falls on her knees and she, you know, she's like, please. And then she says, okay, okay, Even great. Dogs up from the table, right? Yeah. It's like Matthew. Is that a Matthew? Where, where I think that's in Matthew. Again, here's the writer of that gospel trying to make a political point against Phariseeism, putting it back on Jesus, saying, Jesus welcomed Gentiles, even when he said he was coming to teach Jews, like when it mattered, especially in relation to the Pharisees, like he's saying, like invite them in. So it's funny because I, I've always heard that scholars say that this Jerusalem council is a big deal, but you don't get that at church. Like, it's just... Jesus was born, the Gospels, they all agree, and then they have this council and goes to the Gentiles, and that's why everybody can be a Christian now. <laughs> that's right. Um, and so, so to answer your question, no, that, like, I've always wondered why this Jerusalem Council was such a big deal to scholars, because normally we don't talk about this, this rift. Um, we... I don't. I didn't. I don't even think we recognize it as a rift of the Jewish Jesus followers versus the Gentile Jesus followers, um, and um, you know because especially in the LDS culture we're very correlated. Well, of course, this is just the way things happened, and those people were wrong, and who cares about what they think? <laughs> so, so we don't see that as kind of a civil war. I mean, would you say that's almost a civil war in oh, yeah. Christianity? If you put all the pieces together and you see how mad Paul is, you see the word used stasis for as a riot that broke out in the Jerusalem Council. You see how the Gospels are they turn on Pharisees, which yeah. we'll talk about in a minute. They yeah. like everything. So we should we should make that more central. The the problem is. We like to follow a nice timeline and God's in charge and, you know, the star came and the wise men came and Jesus was born and then he was 12 and preached. And and then, of course, the Pharisees were wrong. And so, you know, the gospel goes to everybody. I mean, that, that's the typical story. And I, and I don't think that's just LDS. I think that's all of Christianity. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's not even just a major thing for scholars. Like when I put this research together, I, I, I was doing something else. Like I was talking about, uh, and I was trying to, I wrote my master's thesis on the Pharisees. So I was already thinking about these issues and, and this will guys, I guess will transition us to, to the issue about the Pharisees, but it, something didn't make sense to me. And I was trying to figure out why, like whatever happened, like why did Matthew, especially Matthew just demonize Pharisees so hard. Right. He's coming so strong. Something happened because the way I'm seeing Pharisees and Josephus and everywhere else is not, and even in the Gospels, it's not, it's not warranted. I don't. I, so I started check looking into why this is the case, and I was digging up all the research. And some scholars would dabble in like the Jerusalem Council. You look at the commentaries, and it's just skimpy. Like it's, it is talking about who the different positions are, and the question is whether Gentiles should be convert. Like that's all there, and scholars know that, but. I couldn't find any Christian scholars, very few. Um, there was one scholar who had a very small book where he was talking about this rift and why Peter, whether, whether the gospel writers, Peter was a, an, a failed apostle or something. Like there, few people are talking about it. But I, I didn't find anyone 
who was making a robust argument that uh, that the Gospels were written in a context after the Jerusalem Council during that civil war between the Jewish exclusive followers of Jesus and the Gentile inclusive followers of Jesus. So even even Christian scholars who were trained in, in who you know they they don't that's not um, that doesn't work for many of them because they don't want later writers to make political points and putting it and sticking it back on the 20s you know the 20s when Jesus was alive because i know uh, john dominic crasson for sure um one of his arguments was the pharisees weren't that big of a deal uh, um in jesus day but yeah i disagree with that <laughs> yeah but then all of a sudden <laughs> the pharisees are the enemy almost especially in matthew and he said that didn't happen until much later. I mean, he, he basically agrees with what you're saying, that Jesus and the Pharisees were more buddy-buddy. Yeah, in that aspect, yeah, in that aspect, I agree with him. Um, yeah, you want to launch into it? You want to talk well, about it? Well, and I'd also, yeah, I'd like to talk about that. And also, I think it's hard for me, because you've got Pharisees, Sadducees. It seems like there's another group that I can't place the scenes and the there's scenes. there's fourth philosophy. The scenes are kind of more Dead Sea Scroll people, right? Uh, yeah, possibly. Okay, they're 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 everywhere. And then some people assumed that the Qumran community was a scene, but there's a debate. Uh, oh, there's a debate there. Okay, because can we think of Sadducees as Presbyterians and Pharisees as Pentecostals and Essenes as Baptists or something like that. Can we think of them as like different denominations of Christ, of Judaism, I guess? Yeah, you probably, yeah, you, you probably can. Um, the, uh, okay, so I'll, I'll launch in and if, if your, your eyes start to glaze over, just, just tell me, ask me a question. Because okay. <laughs> uh, I, I could go off for like an hour uh, about all this, but in an the way that if we if we want to go chronological before Jesus comes on the scene and before like we deal with the twenties, basically what you have is um, in the second century BCE, you have the Greeks in power, but then you have a revolt. You have the Mac the Maccabees, the, like the Hasmonean family, and then these, this family called the Maccabees. They these grill fighters this that is they the intertestamental period. Yes, between I'm trying to remember. I know Malachi wasn't the last book. Uh, was it Daniel? Was that the last uh, book? Of Daniel's really a yeah, second century. Yeah. And so between Daniel and Christ, this is the Maccabean period, right? Yeah, this is yeah second century before Rome really comes on scene in the 60s BCE. The Greeks are still there. And you have this time period where Jewish, the Jews through the Hasmoneans took back their their land, their geography, their temple, and for the first time in 400 years since the days of Jeremiah, days of you know days of Zedekiah, so it's been 400 years. They finally have an autonomous state, where they now can have their own king. They can have like the priest, the high priest. The high priest was always there, but now they have the high priest and the king, and then they're ready to go. That's the first time you see Pharisees, you know, come onto the scene. At least according to Josephus is writing later, but he's he's talking about this, and then there's little hints here and there in, in Maccabees and other places about what is happening, and and I I haven't made this argument strong in the book or anywhere else, just a little bit. I think Maccabees is also where we get Hanukkah, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so, uh, very watered. Yes, very watered down version of Hanukkah. Um, 
but and then it continues in the rabbinic period and grows. But um, that's yeah, that's the generation. And the Pharisees show up on the scene, and I make the argument that they're filling the role of the prophets because you have prophets, priests, kings. The reason why I say that is because if you look at the role of prophets throughout the Hebrew Bible, they are constantly in communication with the king. They're kingmakers, and they could destroy a king's career. You see it with Jeremiah and Zedekiah. You see it with, with Isaiah and Hezekiah, um, Samuel and Nathan, with Saul and David, it, it, and the list goes on and on. And so the Pharisees come on the scene, and they are immediately checking and criticizing and sometimes uh, uh, aligning with the Hasmonean kings. So you have uh, Alexander Yeneas, and then his, and then he, the short of it is he didn't side with the Pharisees and it hurt him bad because in Josephus says the, the, the masses followed the, the rulings of the Pharisees. They were teachers of the law. They were righteous men, like they were, they were religious, religiously devoted people. And so Alexander Eunaeus, he makes a mistake and he doesn't ally himself with them. And so people riot him and they, they, he doesn't listen to him and he's a failed king. And so he tells his successor, Alexander Salome, a queen, he tell his wife, he says, I think it's his wife, he says, bring the Pharisees back into your administration, so to speak. You'll be a better, you'll be able to accomplish what you want with the people. The people won't hate you, right? So then she, she, she brings the Pharisees in. And then her, and then her successor, John Hyrcanus, same thing. He says, he brings them in. He says, I want to be righteous. I want to be more God-fearing and I want to follow Jewish law. So can you guys help me? Like the exact quotes in the book that I show this. He says, can you help me? So you get this idea where the Pharisees are coming on the scene where they, um, they look and act like the former prophets. They're gatekeepers of the law. They keep the king in check. The masses are following them and their rulings. And, and so that's, um, and then Pharisaism stays strong for 200 years. At least if we take Josephus as word, that these are, uh, these were people that they, they retained the support of the populace. And he says that they were, they did not chase luxuries. They avoided a life of luxury and delicacies and food. They lived a simple lifestyle. They were cordial to the, to the masses. They didn't speak over the elderly. Like they didn't, they didn't make the elderly. He, he says all this in passing, but he has, in, he has these hints that we put all the pieces together and we, we gather, okay, this is what Pharisaism means. They're very cordial. They're lenient in punishment of, he says, more lenient than all the other groups. Okay, so then we put the Pharisees there, but then the Sadducees are a group who are priestly. There's a, some Sadducean families who are priestly, they're priestly descent. And what happens is they, they come from Sadok um, or Zadok. This is the high priest at the time of David. That's their descendants or they claim is, you know, that they're rightful heirs of the, of the priesthood. What happens is you have this group that breaks away. They move down to Qumran by the Dead Sea this is the Dead Sea sect who wrote the Dead the Sea Scrolls. Scenes. Well, mm-hmm. maybe the Essenes. Maybe the Essenes. The re- the re- most people say they're the Essenes, but the reason why um, I say that, okay, maybe they were Essenes, but they called themselves something else. They called themselves the Sons of Sadok. We, Sa- Sadukim, Sons of Sadok, we are Sadukim, that's where we get Sadducees. Like, we are the Sons of, Sa- of, of Zadok, Sons of Sadok. So they're calling themselves Sadducees. But basically, they write a letter, in, this is a, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's 4QMMT. K4, uh, the Miksat Ma'ase HaTorah in Hebrew, it's the precepts of the Torah. They write this document about, here's how the law is, is to be, here's, here's the law and here's how the, con- the temple should be conducted. They write this letter to the Jerusalem, a Jerusalem sect, Sadducees, and they say, you know we're right. You guys are following these, uh, this other group of people 
he doesn't say Pharisees, but they're the influential group in the time. He says, you're following the rulings of these other groups of people and we hate you. Here's a letter explaining why we hate you. And by the way, that's actually a Jewish a kind of a, you know, whenever synagogues split away, you, you know, write a letter like, this is why we hate you. This is why we're breaking off. Like, we have that letter and then we have the Miksam Asayatra for QMMT. But so you get a sense that now here's the Sadducees who were priest, a priestly group who um, are now forced to follow the, the rulings of the Pharisees. And, but everyone hates them. Everyone. The Pharisees hate him. The populace hates him. It's in all over uh, Josephus. Um, the Sadducean and, and the other priests, priestly establishment that might not be Sadducean, uh, they're not popular like with the masses. We have riot after riot after riot in Josephus and sometimes like in, um, like even in the Gospels when they're in Jerusalem and it says they, the, the people, they feared the people, you know. So that's, uh, I mentioned all that to show that there's these different groups and there, there's this power structure, this power struggle and, um, so and now, if you want to hear my argument about you know the Pharisees and Jesus that uh, you know that I make in the book, a lot of this will come together. Um, when when Jesus comes on the scene after he's baptized and we starts his ministry, we notice that there are Pharisees that are following him around. They're they're constantly around, right? And the and the default explanation for Latter Day Saints or most Christians is what like what the what's They're the nature trap them. all the time. That doesn't make sense to me, though, that you would have – and Matthew does this all the time. Matthew formulaically puts Pharisees and Sadducees together, traipsing around the Galilee, following Jesus on the Sabbath in a, in a cornfield saying, you can't eat that corn, it's the Sabbath. That's, uh, that's hyperbole. Like that's a literary uh, – he's got some rhetorical literary goals. Um, the Pharisees are not hanging out with the Sadducees. Josephus makes this clear that they're enemies. And even in, in Acts, you know, Paul's put up there in the Sanhedrin and he knows that they hate each other. And he says, he mentions resurrection and then they start have this big fight, right? Sadducees versus Pharisees. Because Pharisees Just, believe in resurrection, Sadducees don't. So they, they didn't like each other. Josephus says that the Sadducees controlled the Sanhedrin, but they also had to have some Pharisaic, the notables among the Pharisees to participate. Why? Because they had the, they had the support of the populace. So that doesn't make sense to me that they're you know Pharisees are following Jesus around to entrap to trap him and to jab him and, and kill him. I see this as a cordial uh, relationship. And the reason why I say this is because if you if I, I break down every Pharisee episode, there's 38 episodes if I remember correctly, 38 different settings and episodes where the Pharisees are mentioned. They're, they're mentioned 99, 98, 99 times in 38 episodes. So I go through and I analyze every single episode. And I find that more than half of them are very positive. They come to him. They ask him a question. They call him master. Um, there's a very cordial thing. There's, um, there's one instance where Jesus in Luke, where Jesus is giving a big sermon. And a Pharisee steps up and interrupts him and then asks him to be a guest in a mealtime, in his, like one of these mealtime symposia. So Jesus leaves. What are the implications of all that? Number one, people supported the Pharisees. Like they, they didn't hate the Pharisees. Otherwise, they would have been mad and rioted against this guy. Why are you interrupting him? Like you, like they respect this guy. They let him interrupt. Then Jesus goes with him and everything's peaceful. And then he, now he's like, this doesn't represent all Pharisees, but that one Pharisee or whoever this Pharisee is eating with, he, he brings Jesus in. So I look at every single one, <clears throat> one of those um, episodes and I show that <clears throat> most, sorry, <clears throat> that half of them are positive. There's 17 episodes that appear to be negative. 
like just from a superficial reading, we think, oh, this is a negative, epi- like something, there's some, you know, contention here. But then I analyze them and most of those aren't. So another example is in, um, in fact, I've got the references. I couldn't remember. I, like there's so many. Okay, this is in Matthew 21, where this is the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus goes to the temple and it says the chief, in Matthew, it says the chief priests and the elders approached Jesus. They were going to arrest him. And it says that they, that the, the populace saw Jesus as a prophet. And so the, the chief priests were scared. Remember that? So they left. They weren't going to arrest him because they feared all the people. And they sent back Pharisees to trap Jesus. Okay, that doesn't make sense to me because we know the relationship between chief priests and Pharisees. It's not, you're not just going to have Pharisees doing the dirty work of priests. Even if the Pharisees were aligned with the chief priests, why would the chief priests leave, send back Pharisees who everyone hates to talk to Jesus? Like the fact that they're sending Pharisees back means that people trusted the Pharisees. And Jesus is sitting there talking to him. Okay, in Mark, it's the same thing. Chief priests, elders, and he adds scribes. They do the same thing. They're scared of the populace. They leave. They send back Pharisees. In Luke, and Luke does this all the time. Like my, Luke's my favorite gospel because he uh, he's, seems to be more historically reliable. He writes more like Josephus. He's more sophisticated in his language. He's more nuanced. Luke has the same people approaching Jesus, the chief priests, and the same thing happens. They leave, and it says they send back men pretending to be righteous men. They send back spies pretending to be righteous. It doesn't say Pharisees, but all the other accounts say Pharisees. And we know that the word righteous is, is, is a common word used in relation to Pharisees. It's religiously devoted. It's the Pharisees. Like there's these people pretending to be Pharisees. Like every episode does this. Like the populace trusts them. Jesus trusts them. They're with Jesus all the time. So um, it starts to get... Of those 38 episodes, it starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller where you have this very few like core passages where it's like, Jesus is all out. You're a hypocrite and you're whitewashed tomb with a, a rotting corpse. It's very few. But all of the others, Nicodemus approaches Jesus respectfully and even sticks up, defends him. Um, it's the Pharisees who, uh, we know this from Josephus, that they're the most lenient in punishment. Um, there's a guy named Simeus in Josephus who steps up and Herod's trying to get someone killed. The, Fer- the, the Sadducees say, this guy has the death penalty. It's Simeus, who's a Pharisee. He says, no, no, just whip him and send him on his way. It's, it's excessive punishment. There's like three different times in Josephus where something like that happens. And it's always the Pharisee who sides with the more lenient punishment. In Acts, you have Gamaliel, a Pharisee, who saves the apostles. You have the Pharisees with Paul, as we mentioned. They come in and the Sadducees like want a death penalty. And the Pharisees are like, why? Just let them do their thing. And if they're, if they're, what they're saying is real, then we'll see the fruits of it. It's always the Pharisees. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and he steps up during Jesus' trial and he says, shouldn't he have a, a better trial, like an actual legal trial? It's always the Pharisees. So you see where, the, see where all this is going. Um, there's riots all over the place in Josephus. The people riot, um, the chief priests and the Sadducees. It's everywhere. Not one time in all of the literature can you find a riot against Pharisees. Not one time. If Jesus, if, if they were so bad and they wanted to stone people and they were chasing holy men, miracle workers around Galilee, trying to get him to trap him and they were conspiring to kill him, don't you think everyone would hate him? Hate them? Right? right? They never do. If, if Peter is willing to pull out a sword and chop a guy's ear off and fight for Jesus, why isn't he threatened by Pharisees and fighting for him? Like, 
you know, they're always with him. It's a Pharisee who approaches Jesus in Luke and says, Herod's trying to kill you. Herod Antipas is trying to kill you. He's up in the region of the Galilee where John was, where John was stationed. Yeah. Where he killed John. It says he, he was going after Jesus. It was a Pharisee, not one Pharisee. It's the Pharisees told him just why he went to Jerusalem in the first place. On his way to Jerusalem, Pharisees are with him. And in Luke, we have all of these stories where Pharisees are asking him questions about, they continue this debate about those who, those Gentiles or those people who are outside the house of Israel or those who are like outside the covenant. And, and all of that is rich to tell us the story. So do you remember a Pharisee says, let's talk about this again. What do you do with these sinners or these people who remove, how do you engage them? Like I see you with them all the time, but like, what's your philosophy about how to deal with them? And Jesus says, okay, I'll give you three parables. If you have 99 sheep and you have one that goes astray, like, what do you do? And you go find the lost sheep, right? Just the implication of that story is that Jesus is putting the Pharisees with him in the role of the shepherd. He's not saying, Pharisees, you're the, you're the one sheep. You guys, I need to bring you back because you guys are just corrupt. No, he's saying, the Pharisees don't want to ask the question. He says, you and I need to go find the lost sheep. Like we're all among the 99, we're the shepherds. Like you, you just want to be with yourselves, the Pharisees and the people who believe it. But what about the lost sheep? Okay, then he gives the lost coin and then he gives the parable of the prodigal and his brother, or we call the prodigal son sometimes, but the parable of the prodigal is brother. Again, you have um, this debate where a son takes, he, go, he goes out of his way to remove himself outside the house of Israel. How do we know that? Because he's in a Gentile city with pigs and he's paying for prostitutes. And so it's not just that he took his inheritance and left. He went out of his way to remove himself from covenant Israel. Okay. He spends all his money. He's with pigs. He comes back. And Jesus, again, puts the Pharisees in the, in the older brother position. He says, you and I need to welcome these people that we keep talking about and bring them in. And again, there's that mealtime scenario. He kills the fatted calf. And like, you know, I, I don't want to go in the mill. The brother does not go in the mill. Time. Like he goes, he leaves. They're like, I'm not going to go eat with him. I, I, I should have the mill. Right? So that's their debate. The implication is that the Pharisees are the brother of the prodigal son. And, and then in the story, the father says, all that is mine, you're, you guys are, you're perfect. You're doing what you're supposed to do. And he says, all that is mine is yours. So that's every single episode of the Pharisees comes out positive with very few, very few episodes that are highly negative. So that's, um, you know, when they approach, I could, I could just go out forever. When they approach Jericho, they leave Jerusalem and they're going, Jesus is going down before he gets to Jerusalem. They're approaching Jericho and a man yells out, you're the Messiah. He says, you're the king, you're the Davidic king, right? The apostle just says that his disciples tell him to be quiet. And it's confusing to some Latter-day Saints or some Christian. He's like, why are they, why are they mean to this guy? He's sitting on the side of the road as they approach Jericho. He's yelling out, son of David. And they said, you need to be quiet. Most people don't remember that episode. What they do remember is after after Jesus leaves Jericho and goes the 15-mile trek east, sorry, west to Jerusalem, comes up on the Mount of Olives, when they're having the parade on, of the donkey, the Messianic parade, when they're halfway down, the same thing happens. The people start yelling out, Messiah, son of David. And who is it there? That, oh, sorry. I kicked your camera. Is this still good? Yeah. Who is it there that says, um, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet? In that instance, it's the Pharisees. What's happening is that these are two aristocratic and priestly hubs, Jericho and Jerusalem. 
You do not approach these cities during Passover and have people yelling out, you're the Messiah, you're the new Davidic king. Like you'll get killed within two days. You know, that's what happened to Jesus, <laughs> right? So when Latter-day Saints read this scripture and they're, and they're not, if we're not very sophisticated with our understanding of the Pharisees, we assume, oh, there are the Pharisees again, all along the way, jabbing Jesus and, you know, making it hard for him and saying, be quiet. We don't want you to say that because you're a blasphemer like or whatever, you know, how, however we interpret that. That's not what they're doing at all. They're saying, be quiet as you enter these, these priestly hubs, political hubs, you'll get killed. It's again, it's a Pharisee. It's the Pharisees who are, who are trying to protect him. So um, that's, that's my argument is basically – uh, there's, I go off for pages upon pages, uh, three chapters explaining all this, but I see Jesus working with the Pharisees and all of that rhetoric and invective, all that polemic hypocrites, a lot of that is coming after the Jerusalem council when, especially in Matthew, he's using all this language. And that is, um, I could just explain real quick. I mean, if you got time, like how much time I got, you're still good. I got time. Yeah. Okay. That's the one I spent a whole chapter explaining. What about those few places where Jesus goes, like he's calling him hypocrites, or he goes into um, a synagogue and there's a man with a like a withered hand, or like a lame arm, and the Pharisees are there. And in Matthew and Mark, Jesus heals them. He didn't touch him because in Jewish law, you can't work on the Sabbath or, or engage in, in medical practice like the, because it's considered work, right? So it's kind of nuanced, but he just speaks it. And then it says that the... Pharisees went out, they were furious, and they went out and plotted to destroy him. Even Bruce and McConkie, oh, I, keep, I keep kicking your thing, I'll turn yeah, here. Thanks. Even Bruce, Bruce and McConkie in his commentary says, this is really draconian. It's really weird. It's strange. I don't get it. Okay, well, again, if we look at Luke, remember, we, I always go to Luke. What does he say? And he says that when Jesus heals the man only by speech, which is, which is not, it's not work, um, there's no Jewish text that says you can get in trouble for speaking anything. Only in the Dead Sea Scrolls we have something where somebody says they they engage in business and idle speak on the Sabbath, they you know they're punished and they have to like go set off by themselves or something like they're not being killed right they have to remove themselves, and so um, in Luke it says that they were filled with annoya, which is bewilderment or confusion, and then they went out and they they discussed the case of Jesus, they were annoyed and they they were they were confused. Like, who's this Jesus guy? And how do we, this is early in his ministry. How do we, who is this Jesus guy? Like, how do we understand what he's doing? Is he working? You know, how, how do we, but it doesn't get translated that way. We take Matthew, who's on purpose trying to slander Pharisees for a reason, and we run with that. The story doesn't make sense. Um, and that's because there's this, this rhetoric, this, this issue of Greco-Roman, like, polemic. Like, when he's polemic and invective and name-calling. And the short of it is you have, um, you have like Cicero and Aristotle, they, they write these whole books on how to destroy your political opponent. I spend a lot of time in the book, but this nutshell is, is that they have these books that where you, the philosophers will follow, like how to defeat your opponent in the eyes of the people. So if somebody thinks your opponent is well, brave. I think the current uh, Republicans and Democrats use that playbook. All right? the time. Like this is, this is, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I pull in some social science about a lot of this stuff. I'm pulling, I'm quoting Sigmund Freud and a lot of these people that discuss what happens with groups who are very close in, in ideals and, and also geography and, you know, everything and how those rifts really happen. 
they're, they're, they're the fiercest. And then the language that gets used. And so you, you look at Cicero's book on, on orator, like how to defeat your opponent. And they're saying you, you call them every name in the book. And what you do is you take what seems like the Epicureans and the Stoics and whoever is debating, like the people might not know the differences between us. So we have to find those little differences and magnify them and make them huge and say, and also call them money. Like you guys are doing this for money. You guys are hypocrites. That word is everywhere. You guys are vipers. Like you're um, every, I got a whole list of all the, the common yeah. words you know, show up. And so. It just reminds me of political discourse. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's everywhere. Yes, it's absolutely the case. And it's, it's silly because you have Lucian, who's a Roman satirist. He writes satire and he makes fun of philosophers who do this. He's like, they, they tell lies of each other and they try to like tell the, the, the biggest like lies and call each other hypocrites. And he, and he himself like, he's, you know, he sort of slanders them. And this is the, I, I detail this and show that this is exactly what Matthew and the Jesus community, some of the community are doing with their opponents, the Pharisees. Because Lucian meant, Lucian actually says, all of, all of these philosophers are like these people who dress in these really nice robes and they look magnificent. But if you could see their scrawny little bodies, they remove their robe and they're like, it's people would laugh at them because they're so scrawny. Whitewashed tombs, you look pretty on the outside and you're, you have a rotting, you know, corpse. corpse. And it's just, I detail every time, like the, the, my, you're doing this for money. That's all over the place. So there, there is that issue of using rhetoric and Josephus do, does this. The, uh, Paul does this. He's like, you, these Jerusalem people, they're dogs. I hope they, you know, they castrate themselves on accident. Um, it's everywhere. Uh, Apion, this guy who Josephus just writes a book about Apion. Apion's this non-Jew who says, these Jews, you guys are like the laziest people in the entire Mediterranean region. You take Sabbath, Sabbath day off and your Moses was just a, a charlatan. So Josephus is right back and he just, just slams him and he's calling him a hypocrite. So that's the setting, the, this, this, this rhetoric that's used in a, in a contest. Um, that's where I place a hypocrite. And the, the, the word for hypocrite is important because it means play actor. And if we, and I went and looked up, I'm not a, a classic, classical scholar, so I had to go look up all the research on what a play actor did and how a play actor was viewed in the Roman society. Play, play actors were revered. The, the word is hypocrite, hypocrites, play actor, hypocrite. Um, in Greece, they were revered. In Rome, they were despised. A soldier could not be, a uh, an actor at the, at the play, he he would risk uh, being charged with capital punishment and you know be thrown in prison. And so what? Ma and if you look up what this means, like these are these are foreigner free foreigners. These are a lot of the plays where play actors were assumed to be prostitutes. And the reason why is because you can't trust them. There's these unscrupulous people who you can't trust. They're they're. Their very skill is to deceive you. They act, and so you don't know who they really are. You don't do business with them. They don't have Roman citizenship and they don't have the same, you know, the same privileges. When Matthew was calling these Pharisees hypocrites, all of that baggage of a play actor, of the worst kind of person, the under the dark underbelly of society, he's dumping on the Pharisees because he wants to, you know, he wants to uh, really what he's saying is like Pharisees should be demonized. They should have their Roman citizenship removed if they have Roman, if they're Roman citizens, you know, and so this is. Those very few core passages of the Pharisees that's, that largely Matthew is just is criticizing them, that's where I place that rhetoric. 
Because even in Matthew 23, which is hypocrite and you guys are whitewashed in and all that, even there, Jesus at the beginning says, listen to the Pharisees, you know, and, and follow the law, but even do it better than the Pharisees because the Pharisees preach a good law. Like he, he's giving them a compliment. And a lot of the, and, and even like in Matthew, the fact that you would, the word hypocrite back then does not mean somebody who preaches one thing and does another. That's what we say it means. What it means is that somebody who's, who's living the law, it's like an actor, like they're playing the part. We can see that they're, 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 they're playing the part, but they're not genuine. The fact that Matthew is saying that Pharisees over and over are hypocrites means that he's acknowledging in a, in a, he's like giving them a backhanded compliment. He doesn't realize he's complimenting them. He's saying they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're living the law, but their heart's not in the right place. Once you get into the, the situation where you're judging people's motives and you can say, yeah, but they're, they don't really mean it. They're scum, like they're hypocrites. Um, I mean, that by the way he's calling them that, it's actually good for my argument, mm-hmm. right? Because, and there's other places in Matthew where Jesus says, I've got the reference here, but Jesus says, it's actually in chapter 23, same Matthew 23, he says, you, um, and he's just blasting me. He says, you have killed, you killed the prophets that came before us. And so, and then you will, and then I will send, I will, you will then, I will bring prophets or I will send prophets and you'll kill them in the future. Okay, that is that is strange. Like, he's criticizing them for some ambiguous thing that they did in the past. Like, he says, you are descendants of those who killed the prophets. Which prophets? Are you talking about 400 years ago at the time of Jeremiah or 500 years ago, 600 years ago? And you're gonna, and Jesus is going to condemn Pharisees for being descendants of those who killed the prophets. And then he says, I'm, in the future, you're going to kill those people as well. In other words, like, that's exactly what Cicero and, you know, that's what exactly what they're saying. Create this straw man. And then, you know, and then hacked to pieces, right? Um, he didn't identif- identify exactly what they were doing wrong. It's like this, oh, you killed the prophets. So every single, every single episode, every single time it, it, it works that way. Um, and then they disappear from the trial. They're not at the trial. They're gone. Because most likely if they were in the trial, they would have been like Nicodemus and Simeus and they would have been like Gamaliel and Jesus would have got off. Jesus, let him, let him alone. He would have got off, yeah. yeah, yeah. So... Um, uh, I just want to state real quick that the reason why this is not just some scholarly thing that nobody cares about. Like, you know, yeah, there's the pair. I can imagine Latter-day Saints saying it's, this is interesting and all as an academic exercise, but it's really the parables and that other stuff that matters. So why does this matter? Why do I spend like three chapters like really, you know, detailing this? Uh, it's because the implications of this are that Latter-day Saints and Christians and even before Latter-day Saints came for 1,700 years, you had you had Christians demonizing Jews, killing them, calling them Christ killers. And they, 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 they did it to Jews in general and the priestly establishment, but also the Pharisees. And even like if you were to, I'm just one, let, let's see, let's see if we Google Pharisees and Latter-day Saints. I don't, I don't know if I, let me see what I find. Let's just, okay, Pharisees. Because we use that term always in derision. Oh, you're just being pharisaical. Right. Yeah. Okay. So here's, you got the first three are the the church's website and they're just basic, you know, encyclopedia entries almost of Pharisees. Then, okay. Then, then after that, you get the first, after the church is like propped up position, you have the first 
LDS living, four signs you're acting like a Pharisee and how to stop now. I, I've seen this before. I didn't know it. I just, I didn't know it would show up here. But I've seen that before and I actually sent LDS living. Because we do that all the time. Um, is that is that anti-Semitic to, to call somebody a Pharisee? Yes, because the, what that implies and we... we what this is saying, that, and if you read that article and actually sent LDS Living a message, I said, this is not good for our relations, for LDS Jewish relations. It's deeply anti-Semitic because you're going through and you're saying, are you a hypocrite? You judge people. You do this. And, and uh, these, are, these are Israel's leaders. If it weren't for the Pharisees, the nation would have crumbled and died out, you know, died out after the temple was destroyed. But it was because of the Pharisees who were proto-rabbis. They, they transitioned to the rabbis, the sages. A lot of times, in some instances, they were Pharisaic. They traced their lineage back through the Pharisees. And you're demonizing an entire group of people and their leadership by saying they were hypocrites, faithless. They rejected the law. They rejected Jesus. And because of that, we are, without trying to be too sensational or dramatic, we are contributing to those millions of Jews' lives being lost all throughout the Middle Ages, culminating in the, in the Holocaust by perpetuating that interpretation because the in philadelphia in 2019 i think it's late 2018 or 2019 you had the philadelphia synagogue shooter right. he goes in guns down 11 people they look at his social media and he says i did this because the jews are the devil john 8 44 right and so this is a, as a jewish studies scholar who knows the history about what happened to the Jewish people, Christians are not warranted to say that Jews killed Jesus. 